This is Dr. Robin Axelrod. For the past 15 years, I've been helping children and adults meet their full potential. On our podcast, we're going to share some tips and tricks with you and some of my knowledge on how you can reach your potential and your family's goals. Each week, we'll be highlighting different specialists that can help you understand human development and how to assist your family in living their best lives. Welcome to Ask the Therapist. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Ask the Therapist. Our guest tonight is a young man who grew up in the Orthodox community who we're going to call Jason. Jason accepted our invitation to come speak about his experiences with trauma and alcohol and substance abuse. Uh, For his privacy, we won't be using his real name. Uh, Jason suffered some abuse growing up and began drinking at the age of 12 and would come to start also... um, using drugs in his teenage years. He's currently in his mid-20s and just recently celebrated four years of sobriety. Hi, Jason. Welcome, and thank you for being here. Hi. Thanks for having me. So I really just want to hear about, you know, your life and your story. Where where do you want to begin? Um, I guess start at the bottom. Start from the beginning. Okay. Go ahead. Um, all right. So, as you mentioned, I uh, was born and raised in the Orthodox community. Um, I am the oldest child, which obviously has its own set of challenges, kind of being the uh, guinea pig. Um, I don't blame my parents in any way today. Uh, for a very long time, I did, though. So, growing up, um, ever since I could remember, at a very young age, I always felt like I kind of needed to fit in, um, to kind of fit in with the cool kids and, and to sort of, you know, have other people's approval um, to give me self-worth. And from a very young age, that was, and I was hanging out with, you know, the core kids on the block. Um, my dad didn't appreciate it, so that kind of created conflict. Now, my dad from the get-go kind of had this mindset um, that he wants me to be raised a specific way, and I did not like that way, and I did not want to follow necessarily in those footsteps. Um, so that sort of created this friction from a very, very young age between me and my father. Um, my mom, on the other hand, from the you know from a young age, <clears throat> she would kind of defend me, protect me, sort of be on my side, but. Eventually, there was too much friction between my parents that she kind of started buying into whatever my dad was sort of selling. Um, and at a very young age, um, you know, there was a lot of screaming and hitting going on in the house um, because I wasn't going to necessarily listen to whatever my father said. And ultimately, that ended up with a lot of um, verbal attacks and physical attacks. Now, Eventually, at about six or seven years old, I'm not, you know, my memory of my childhood is kind of foggy because of what happened. Um, I was molested, and that kind of went from the age of seven till about the age of six or seven till about the age of 12. Um, Originally, I did not know what it meant. Um, I had no idea what was right and what's wrong. To me, it was somebody that I sort of looked up to, and, you know, I felt that obviously that would be a way for me to sort of interact and kind of get his approval. Um, Eventually came to a point where, you know, I wasn't so much fun anymore, but still 
kind of like threatened me. So I sort of had to maintain the secrecy. But ultimately what ended up happening was, is that two things being that I also was not getting along with my dad regarding many other issues. And as I got older, those, fa- those fights um, sort of elevated and they got a lot bigger. Um, but along with that, there is this level of secrecy of, you know, hiding everything that I was doing for my dad along with whatever was going on with me being molested, um, because I somehow had the sense that it was the wrong thing. Um, but I didn't have the courage to speak out for myself. And at the same time, also, I was kind of just trying to get this kid's approval um, from a very young age. Um, eventually, when I was about <clears throat> 11, 12 years old, um, my parents found out. Um, they found out from this kid's mom. Uh, apparently, he was caught by somebody else. And my parents ended up calling me in. And I remember I sat down with my mom and I burst out crying. And I told her everything that went, everything that happened. Um, but what I remember clearly telling my mom was, don't tell dad. Um, like, don't tell him at all. I don't, I don't want this. I don't let it. And about two weeks later, you know, my mom and my dad sat me down and told me what was going on and figured they sent me to therapist to sort of kind of work through all of this stuff. I was also having issues in school at the same time, sort of along with similar concepts of, you know, getting the fights with my dad. I wasn't interested in necessarily following with whatever it was that they wanted me to do. Um, but the one thing that I can say was at that conversation, I sort of had this immense hatred towards my mom because she was the one person that I trusted with this story. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then she went ahead and told my dad and I was infuriated. Um, eventually I got to see, you know, a therapist and I was sort of making progress with him. And then someone suggested to my parents that there was a different therapist that was better. Um, but at the time, that's not what I was told. I was just told, Hey, we want you to see this one instead of that one. And at that point already was the point where I was like, all right, I'm shutting down from everybody. I'm not letting anybody get inside. Um, and I sort of became this closed off brick wall at the same time, um, being that I was in the Orthodox community, drinking is pretty accepted. Um, and although, you know, the heavy amounts of it are usually done on holidays, that's kind of where it started. I remember my first drink, um, I drank, I threw up, I hated it, and I swore to myself I was never going to drink again. But about two months later, I was hanging around with a whole bunch of other kids, and, you know, I was like, all right, I can have this again and try to prove myself and, again, try to get the approval of others and sort of, you know, try to get other people to like me. So I was drinking again. And what ended up happening was, is that I was just doing it at that point, not every day, you know, but like probably once every two, three weeks, maybe once a month, kind of sneaking, you know, a bottle or two out of my parents' closet. Um, it was around that same time that I went to high school and, you know, I had my own set of issues there. I started smoking also when I was about 12 years old. Uh, when I was in ninth grade, um, I was 13 years old when I came into ninth grade and I was already smoking daily. Uh, the school would kind of have this, you know, this policy and then they would come after me and then they told me I can't do it. And I'd hide it from them, you know, again, all along the lines of secrecy and sort of remaining, um, closed book, you know, not allowing anybody in, um, at the time also, um, my religion got very shaky because, at a very young age, it used to be the uh, Friday nights are the main focal points of all the arguments in the house because that's when everybody was around, and I used to run up and escape to my room and 
all it took was one Friday night for me to just get really upset and kind of, you know, stick on back in the day with cassette players, uh, kind of stick on the, the headphones, listen to music to drown out everything. And what I was taught was, you know, pretty much a lightning bolt was supposed to hit me. That never happened. So ultimately over the course of time, that sort of fell to the wayside as well. So basically here I am in 10th grade and about to get thrown out of school. Principal thought I was up to like a lot of no good. You know, he thought I was, smoking weed, um, you know, and doing all kinds of other crazy stuff. And he called my father and he told him that I was doing all that, but I wasn't, my dad didn't believe me. And at that point I was like, all right, if he doesn't believe me anyways, I might as well just start smoking weed. And I did, um, you know, I started smoking weed towards the end of 10th grade. I was 15 years old and I hated it in the beginning. I absolutely hated it. And I kept doing it again because it helped me escape, but I still hated the way it made me feel. Um, and that kind of happened through 11th grade. I ended up getting thrown out of school at the end of 11th grade. I ended up going to a different school, um, which is sort of for, uh, I guess, call them wayward teens in the Jewish community. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I went there and, uh, you know, the rabbi there was, was uh, extremely abusive, uh, both physically and verbally. It was kind of his sort of motto of tough love. And it was at that same time that I started, I got introduced to some hard drugs. Um, started off with a drug called MDMA, and a short while after that, I was introduced to cocaine. And once, once I had my first experience with cocaine, I was off to the races. Um, what ended up happening was I got thrown out of that school, I ended up eventually leaving and kind of going to work and starting one job and then I ended up leaving that job because it just wasn't working out for me and then I went to another job and ultimately it came to a point where my cocaine addiction and my partying and my you know other drug usage has come to a point where you know my dad and my mom had no idea they just knew I was drinking but you know some other people told me you know what you gotta leave the country you gotta go to Israel you know you gotta get sober um so I went to Israel and I was supposed to see a drug counselor there twice a week, which I did. Um, but what happened was with the drug counselor, he kind of just made this deal with me of like how much I can use. And, but he never really told me to stop. And I found out later on that the reason why he didn't was because, and he's honestly right about this. If he would have told me to stop, I would have left and never came back. So at least he somehow had some sort of idea of what I was using when I was using it. I've had a lot of experiences, um, both while I was younger, I've had alcohol poisoning. I've ended up in the hospital with broken limbs, um, unconscious for several hours in Israel. I had the same experience at concussions. Um, you know, the stories can kind of go on and on about that, but uh, I'm just going to stick to, you know, the kind of the main aspect of what was going on. I came back from Israel for about six weeks because I was absolutely miserable there. And I came back for six weeks and what happened was when I was in Israel, so there wasn't a lot of cocaine that I had access to. So I just started, you know, using Xanax and smoking heroin, although I wasn't really necessarily a big fan, but I constantly needed that escape from reality. And I constantly needed to fill like a void inside me. Um, you know, I felt like the world was out to get me and I felt that like, if only you knew what I was going through, you'd also be doing the same amount of drugs. Um, 
and that's pretty much what happened. I came back, I started, you know, doing cocaine again. And I had this short, brief sobriety time that I like to call it where I was only drinking, where I was only doing this drug and I was only doing that drug. But ultimately every single time it eventually ended up in the same place. I ended up going back to Israel for about another two months. Didn't work out, came back to the States, um, got my own place, was working a job and it didn't really, it didn't really end. Um, it just kept going and getting worse and worse and worse. Um, a lot of partying. Eventually I started, um, getting involved a little bit in the, uh, the legal business aspect of it, um, to kind of support my habits and, my life just kept getting darker and darker and darker. And the outside, I put on this great show of <clears throat> everything's fine, everything's great, I'm partying. But ultimately, like inside, I felt dead. You know, I felt absolutely nothing. I was constantly faced with this like in underlying anxiety and depression, but something that is so, was so taboo at the time in the Orthodox community, I can never identify it. And, you know, I just felt like, ah, oh, I wanted to die or like if only other people felt this way or, you know, I felt anxious, I can't get out of bed or, and that was something that kind of played out, um, throughout my entire life, but I never, ever knew about it. And I still hadn't known about it at this point. Um, eventually it came to a point where, you know, I got into a really toxic relationship with somebody and it ended really messy. And I was sort of at the end of my run at that time. And, what ended up happening was, was I was at a music festival and music was the one thing that I'd always have as my vice, as my crutch to sort of help me um, escape reality in the only real way that I knew other than drugs and alcohol. And I was at the music festival. And I remember I could not get, I could not get whatever it was that was missing inside me filled. There was nothing that was going to do it for me. And at that time I knew that that was it. I, I'm done. There's no way I can carry on. Um, and I tried to commit suicide in, uh, at a music festival. Um, I don't know what happened. I was told I flatlined for about 20 seconds. Um, all I know is I remember waking up, um, kind of tearing out the ground, like being really, really upset that I was somehow still alive with a whole bunch of friends looking around me. And, uh, I came back from the music festival and what happened was, a friend of mine found out what happened. One of the men, one of my mentors that I had kind of, you know, helped me out the whole time. Now me and my parents, the relationship was still absolutely like completely obsolete. Um, there was nothing there. Um, you know, I was not doing anything that they had wanted me to do. I was completely non-religious at this point. Um, but this mentor sort of found out about it. He sat me down and he told me, he's like, you need to go into, um, a dual diagnosis rehab center. Um, he's like, you don't really have a choice at this point. It's either that or we're going to call the cops and sort of take you into a psych ward. And I remember at that time, my drug counselor from Israel called me up as well and told me the same exact thing, explained to me that, you know, this is the story you need to go. And I was just so convinced at the time that I am not a drug addict. You know, all my drug usage was for the point of because everybody was out to get me. And, you know, if only I can fix everything and everyone around me, my problems would be okay. You know, and I'd be okay feeling the way I feel. Um, and I, I was kind of, you know, sold on the movies, you know, like the alcoholic is a dude that's sitting on the, you know, on the stoop on the side with the brown bottle homeless, you know, the drug addict is the one who's passed out in an alleyway. And I was never that guy. Um, but ultimately that's not what a drug addict and alcoholic is. It's the feeling surrounding it. It's the drinking, it's the unlimited 
unlimited void that remains inside me constantly craving the, ne- the next drink, you know, and even if I could stay clean for a long time or stay sober, ultimately once I picked up a drink or a drug, any substance that went into my body was off to the races. There was no one, two, three. It was always completely until I could not do any more um, and then some. To make a long story short, I eventually ended up in Karen in Pennsylvania, which is a dual diagnosis rehab center. And um, I remember going in there. Uh, my dad actually took me. I still, we were still on miserable terms, but I remember when he took me into detox there, I was, I was still extremely, um, I was on many different substances because I figured I was like, listen, if I can't, if I kill myself before I get there, fine. If not, I just don't want to remember the first couple of weeks that I'm there. I remember walking in there and I had this like complete sober moment where I looked at my dad and I told him that I am petrified because for me, I knew it was at the end of the run. Um, either this was going to happen that I was going to get clean, which to me, I cannot fathom a life without drugs and alcohol or, or I'm dying. So I'm not scared of dying, but I'm completely terrified of living my life sober. <clears throat> Eventually I made it through rehab and I had sort of an experience. It was a 12 step program over there. And, you know, without necessarily going through the 12 steps per se, um, but that's just how I got sober. Like I said, you know, I've gone to Israel. I've seen a drug counselor. I've tried a little bit of smart recovery, and all of these are great programs, um, and I know a lot of people that they've helped. For me, ultimately, they didn't do it for me, and the one thing that did it was a 12-step program. So I went through the – I was in rehab for about four months. Um, I sort of touched, started kind of touching a little bit on the trauma that happened when I was a kid. Um surfaced a little bit, eventually kind of came out of my shell a little bit regarding that. They had these special trauma groups, um, didn't do a lot of work. Um, and then over there, they had me see a psychiatrist and I saw a psychiatrist over there and he put me on some meds. Um, you know, they, they diagnosed me with depression, anxiety, PTSD, um, and an eating disorder as well. Now, that worked for a little bit. Um, again, when you walk into a rehab center and you're pretty much detoxing the first two, three weeks and you're just getting off substances, there's no real way to get a proper diagnosis regarding anything past that, like mental health issues and stuff like that. So I went through rehab and halfway through rehab, they kind of had me sit down with my parents to sort of have this like family session. And it kind of blew up the first time. Eventually they had them come down a second time and, we both kind of shared our stories and and a lot, like a lot has come to light about that. You know, like my dad today, I have a great relationship with him. I have a great relationship with with my mom, but I'll, I'll get to that soon. Anyways, getting out of rehab, ended up going to sober living for about six months. Things were okay. Um, my meds started acting weird and I, I started feeling all types of ways and I ended up seeing a psychiatrist up where I lived. Um, I'm not going to say where that was per se. I don't want anybody kind of, going after the psychiatrist, but he ended up switching all my medications and he said that this is what's going to do it for you. I was seeing him about once a month. He never really asked me how the month went. And to me, the whole mental health thing was brand new too. So I didn't think about, Oh, let me backtrack a month and see how I was feeling. And it kind of helped for a little bit. For like the first month, the meds were working and all. Um, I think it was just the fact that there was a change in my medication and my body was sort of adjusting to it. Um, so what ended up happening was is that um, 
I have been self-harming prior I went to rehab and then once I got there I stopped but then once these medications stopped working um, I kind of continued with that and I wasn't telling anybody about it because it wasn't anybody's business and again this whole thing was kind of new to me and um, I didn't really know much about it and what ended up happening was is that I remember driving from work one day and uh, I had a pretty serious incident um, you know, the way I self-harmed was I cut. And uh, I had a pretty serious incident. This is about probably close to two years into my sobriety. Uh, I called my friend up and kind of asked her if I can come over and, you know, wash my hands off. Because um, I'm OCD and I didn't want to get my car dirty. Anyways, I had to go to her house and basically she saw what was going on. She called somebody else who called somebody else. And within five minutes, there was a conference call and that was it. I had to go into a psych ward. And I was in uh, Westchester psych ward for two weeks. Um, again, very short time period. Gave me a little break. I didn't really go out of there feeling any better than when I went in. Um, they sort of addressed my eating problems and my eating habits. I went in there weighing 135 pounds, and a guy my size is supposed to be weighing about 170, 175. But again, it's only two weeks. There's not much to do. They could diagnose me. They diagnosed me with, um, I think, uh, borderline personality disorder. Twenty. I mean, looking back, and I've heard about it, they kind of diagnosed everybody the same just to kind of get them through. Um, great program. They did a lot of uh, good stuff for me. But ultimately, when I got out, I remember sitting on the phone with a friend and telling him, I can't, I just can't do this anymore. I don't have the desire to live. And at this point, the interesting thing was is that I didn't even think about going back to drugs and alcohol because I knew at that point how much they didn't do anything for me and how much, like, even at that point, like, the drugs and alcohol became my biggest problem, even though for a very long time they were my biggest solution. And I sat on the phone with him, and I told him I can't go on. And the one thing he told me, and I'll never forget it, was he asked me, do you believe that I believe that you can get better? He's like, do you, do you trust me? Do you think I'm lying to you? And I said, no. I said, I don't believe it, but I can believe that you believe things. He's like, just trust me. I believe that you can do better. And by the grace of God, it just so happens to be that the psychiatrist that was working at the time at the place that I was going to sort of went MIA and they got a brand new psychiatrist in. And this woman sort of saved my life at the same time I got a therapist as well in the city and Two of them kind of worked together with me. Eventually, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, um, and I ended up getting medicated for that and treated and sort of started my journey a little bit in life, kind of took things slow in the beginning and eventually started, you know, kind of growing on that. And, uh, you know, again, over this time, my parents, my relationship with my parents has been phenomenal. I'm, like, super beyond grateful for them. I speak to my mom and dad all the time, my siblings. Um, and again, this is all stuff that like just cleared up and kind of, you know, a lot of it was kind of putting myself in other people's shoes, you know, like how do they feel? What are they thinking about? Um, until this day, that's what really helps me stay sober and helps me stay sane. You know, it's like, it's not really all about me. It's a lot about like, I live in a universe surrounded with so many other people. And if I live my life just for me, I'm, I'm done. Like I got nothing. Cause like ultimately if I'm just living for me, I, I don't know how sane and sober I'd be able to stay. Um, my life is definitely beyond my wildest dreams today, and it's a great life, and I'm very, very grateful for it. Um, 
a lot of things have happened over the past year and there's struggles and there's, you know, it hasn't been a pink cloud and, you know, smooth sailing, you know, I had a lot of issues going through jobs and ups and downs. And even with my mental health stuff till this day, you know, as, as much as the medication and therapy and connecting to other people helps, you know, there's ultimately days where I wake up in the morning and I just do not want to get out of bed. Some days I wake up and I'm like, what's the point in life? I don't want to live anymore. And all I got to do is just, pick up a phone call and call somebody else that I know that's either struggling with this or has struggled with this and sort of connect with them and sort of either be of service to them to kind of give me a purpose in life or to allow them to sort of share their experience with me and, and for me to gain some of that. And then, you know, to kind of kick myself to get out of bed and, you know, ultimately, like, I, I see all over the place online, like, you know, the struggle is to get out of bed, but, you know, if only you can get yourself out of bed, just, you know, force yourself to do it and force yourself through the day. And to be honest, some days, like, there is no such thing as forcing myself. Like, it's just, it's just not going to happen. I could force myself to get out of bed, and then the next thing I'm not interested in showering or eating or anything like that, you know. And I'm very grateful today that a lot of my, you know, my issues um, with eating have been, you know, resolved. I've, I've, I found a great gym that I work at and started working on it with my therapist as well. And there's a lot of, you know, along with the self-harm, there's a lot of uh, self-image issues and self-esteem. And, you know, I've worked through all this stuff, but like I said, you know, not every day is perfect. And there's some days where I wake up and I won't eat anything all day. And there's some days I wake up and I won't get out of bed all day. But, you know, for the most part, I'm grateful to be a productive member of society today. You know, I, I have a very a good job in a corporate company. Um, you know, and I, I do show up every day for work because thank God today my life is a lot better no matter what's going on around me. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's, that's my, uh, pretty much in short, I guess, <laughs> as long as yeah. that was my story. Right. And, and, you know, you've, you know, you've been through, it sounds like so much. Um, and, and one of the things that you said was, you know, you've said a lot of really, really important things, and one of the reasons why I think it's so important to have people like you coming on to talk about things like this is because, you know, there are people who are struggling with similar things that have no idea what's going on inside of them, um, or they don't know that other people have experienced what they're experiencing, or they, they don't really have, like, you know, a, a way to really see out of their experience in any way. It just can feel very very lonely and very shameful, I think, because I think that when you suffer abuse as a child, a lot of what happens is that, you know, you internalize what's happening. You blame yourself. You have a lot of guilt or, or shame. Was that something that you experienced? Definitely. I mean, because ultimately as a little kid, um, you know, I, I believe society is kind of is born with this sort of black box set of rules of, of who's in charge and where our figures are supposed to be. Um, and ultimately, like my parents are supposed to be my role models. Um, you know, I wish I wish that wasn't the case necessarily where I could have relied on other people to be my role models. Um, but that's what ended up happening. And that's why I ended up in the whole situation of being molested for a couple of years. But ultimately, like as a little kid and I soak up information, whether it be a teacher, whether it be a parent, whether it be a friend, you know, we're kind of, you know, we soak all this information in and as much as it's negative it's going to eventually, it's going to kind of seep in and internalize. And then it only gets magnified as I grow older and older. Am I really worth it? Am I enough? Right. And I think that can feed into our, our feelings of self-worth, right? Like, as you said, um, yeah. really beautifully. Right. Um, but 
um, you also said you were trying all these things. You were drinking alcohol. You were smoking weed. You hated it, right? Like, but it was an escape. It was, it was just some way to fill something that was going on um, that wasn't really, it doesn't sound like it was really being addressed or that at some point, it was being addressed at some point, but then you kind of really just closed that part off. You know, you just kind of had to sort of, uh, you know, shut down in order to, to sort of survive. Yeah. Um, you know, and so I think that that's, that's also something that is really relevant for people to know is that, you know, when, when you observe young people acting in ways that, that seem really kind of confusing and, and, you know, alarming at times, you know, there's often stuff going on underneath the surface that's not being addressed or that's not being, you know, um, sort of um, helped, you know, I think that at the time, it sounds like you really needed some help. Yeah. And uh, what I can add is, is that, see, the, the, the thing that I've encountered most in the past couple of years of talking to other addicts, alcoholics, people that have been through the mental health, all different mental health issues, whether it be, you know, whatever it may be, the one thing that I've found so, so common with everybody is, you know, it's sort of ingrained in certain people exactly like what trauma looks like, um, like what verbal abuse looks like, what physical abuse looks like, what sexual abuse looks like. And then we sort of, you know, kind of base views and opinions on that when in reality, every single person reacts differently to every situation. Like I've met people that are 50 years old that have gone through, I'd say less years per se of molestation than I have. And ultimately like they still have not gotten over it, you know, and, and, and I don't blame them because everything affects somebody a different way. You can have a kid that was, you know, you can have a kid that had one bad experience with one bad person, um, whether it be verbal, sexual, like physical, it doesn't really make a difference. Anything can, can, can trigger. I don't really like using that word per se, but anything can sort of traumatize a person and we really, and like, we really don't know what that is. And, you know, we could look at a kid's life and be like, Oh, it's great. His parents gave him everything. Or, you know, this kid is in the best schools and he's doing so well. And then all of a sudden something pops up. Um, and I'm not saying that every single case necessarily, there's some trauma underlying it. You know, sometimes like I've encountered, there's plenty of, I know a lot of teenagers these days that, you know, have, uh, are smoking pot and a lot of them that are, you know, slowly starting to drink. And, and I don't, I don't believe that all of them are addicts and alcoholics or are potential addicts and alcoholics. There's definitely going to be some that are going to just push it to the limit and there's going to be some that are going to push it past it. But again, there's, there's also times where, you know, a kid's got nothing going for him in his life and he's put in the wrong school and he's just bored or he's just not interested, uh, not interested in really doing much with his life as a team would want to do kind of getting, you know, involved in the wrong crowds. Um, and, and, you know, at that point there's like not, I hate to say this, but I don't see, you know, much of an answer to an issue like that, you know, to kind of just ship them off all to rehab, um, you know, try to talk. I, I talk to a lot of them and, and some of them are receptive to it. And other ones are like, cool. Like, I respect you for doing all that you did. And like, it's crazy that you did all that, but I'm never going to do that. And I'm just not interested in doing anything right now. And I'm just, you know, kind of chilling as they say. Um, so it's like a really, it's really like tough um, 
it's a tough predicament, like to really know what's going on. Um, and like I spoke to you earlier about, I firmly believe that every addict and alcoholic, again, this is just my view and, and research that I've done. There's obviously so many, so much different research to support so many different um, ideas and opinions. But what I found is, is that I believe that every addict and alcoholic was born an addict and an alcoholic. And it's just a matter of some people doesn't actually play out later on in their lives and they don't become full-blown drug addicts and alcoholics. I believe it's sort of like this cocktail of life, different scenarios and different circumstances that all came together to kind of cause it to sort of to blow up as opposed to other people that are sort of missing this point and missing this point. And ultimately, you know, it doesn't necessarily lead to that. Right. And so I think, you know, certainly trauma can contribute heavily to, you know, um, people becoming addicted to drugs and alcohol um, because sometimes it can just be a way to self-medicate whatever you're feeling inside. Um, You know, so I I think that it can can be a cocktail, but certainly um, there are things that can happen in the course of a person's life that can certainly be an accelerant, right? Or you know, something that really Definitely. kind of makes things explode, right? As you said. Um, yeah. And you you said that you know I, you know, we're talking about other people who um, are engaging in these behaviors, and you'd said that you did not see yourself as being a drug addict. You know, Correct. you were the problem with everyone else, and a, a drug addict in your mind had a very particular kind of look that were, or was a certain type of stereotype type, type of person. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. I mean, uh, in my mind, it was always a matter of comparing myself out to other people, um, to kind of make myself feel better. Um, you know, this person's a full blown drug addict. This one, like I kind of, you know, you see in the movies and, and like the alcoholic is the person that's like looking homeless, drinking, you know, a bottle of liquor out of a paper bag or, or, or to me, the guy who was a real drug addict was the guy who was passed out in the alleyway, you know, shoot, shooting heroin. Um, but I wasn't shooting heroin. I was just smoking crack and doing cocaine and, and I had a quote unquote good job and I was making money and I can dress nicer. So, you know, I, I don't have these issues and I can really stop like the delusion that I can really stop at any time, which if I really put it down on pen and paper, there was never a point where I could have gone more than five or six weeks without some sort of substance. Um, and ultimately every time I picked up again, I ended up back in the same place, you know, back at square, you know, back at square one thinking, you know, how did I get here? But I'm also not a drug addict and I could control my drug usage and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And the biggest problem with placing the blame on everybody else is kind of thinking that, um, the problem is not me and, and I'm just self-medicating, you know, similar mm-hmm. to like what you had said. And then well, what ends up happening yeah. with that is what ends up happening with that is, is that it sort of puts on this like mask, um, of reality of like what's really going on and sort of allows me to live in this delusion, um, and oblivion that I'm okay. Relatively all of you are crazy. Right. And was there like an aha moment where suddenly some, it just felt flipped or you kind of were sort of able to take in what you had been hearing from other people and their concern about your alcohol and drug use? So, I mean, like I said, right before I went into rehab, I had uh, my suicide attempt at this music festival. And even Mm -hmm. at that point, I still didn't believe I was a drug addict 
like, or an alcoholic. And even when I went into rehab, after about two weeks of listening to like all these kind of interesting ideas of, of, you know, once I start, I can't stop and kind of going through all the years of my drug usage and putting it all down on a pen and paper and seeing exactly what everything was and kind of seeing it in like this, in, in reality, you know, kind of really seeing it in front of me, even at that point, I was like, okay, so I'm going to call myself a drug addict, but I'm not going to call myself an alcoholic. Um, because I didn't drink alcoholically. And what it took was, was that somebody came up to visit me in rehab and kind of showed me a picture of like a table in my room that just had ridiculous amounts of empty bottles of alcohol because I was so stuck in my alcohol and drug addiction that it never even occurred to me to even throw the bottles out. It was just a matter of drinking them, putting them down. Um, and then there was the idea of if I don't admit that I'm alcoholic, then I can ultimately have this reservation that one day I can drink again. Um, and that alone in itself is just another, you know, to me, it's just another sign of alcoholism. Um, if I had to ask my dad, can you see yourself never getting drunk for the rest of your life without question, he'd be able to tell me yes. Mm-hmm. You know, he can tell me no problem. Um, and if you had asked me, there was no way I could have ever said that, you know. Yeah, so it sounds like that was kind of, you know, even after everything you'd been through, it really it took some more time for you to come to that realization. Yeah, it took me about oh. like probably three or four weeks into rehab until I really, uh, until I really settled in. Yeah, um, and you you have said that you have a, a good relationship with your family now. Yes, I'm I'm beyond grateful for it. Um, it's, it's built a lot on respect, um, and understanding. And, you know, my parents do not have to have necessarily the respect that they do for me. And I don't necessarily have to have that respect for them, but I'm beyond grateful that we're both able to kind of see eye to eye to realize that, you know, we are living different lives and I'm sure, you know, I I know my parents would like me still to live a different life than I'm living today. Um, I'm not religious today. Um, I'm comfortable with that. You know, I do believe in a God and I I try to maintain spirituality, um, in the form of like believing, you know, and helping other people and trying to connect closer, um, with a God of my understanding, you know, um, but at the end of the day, me and them have this, you know, a really, really close bond and relationship. And if I would go home to their house, being that they're religious, you know, I wouldn't pull up on Shabbat. I wouldn't go in there without a keep ball, cover up my tattoos and, you know, and, and my parents sort of have that same respect back. And, and through that, we were able to sort of build like a beautiful, healthy relationship and with my siblings as well. You know, I kind of try to go home. I live far from my parents um, just by default where, I, you know, where I work and where I live there. Um, so I kind of try to go home at least once or twice a month. But I speak to my parents at least two, three times a week. And, you know, I'm, like I said, I'm beyond grateful for that relationship that I have today with them. Yeah. How do how did you come to that sort of place of mutual respect? So like I mentioned briefly before in rehab, they had like this group therapy, not group. They had this, um, they called it like a family session where you kind of sit down with your parents. Um, the first time that it happened, did it about three weeks into rehab and it blew up. It was, it was a mess. You know, it was like screaming and cursing. I was losing it at them. They were losing it at me. And, they just had to break it up and send them home. Um, then they had it again uh, about four weeks later, and they had, uh, I think it was like three therapists in the room sitting and sort of mediating between us. 
and allowed each side to kind of give over their story and give over their side. And my parents never knew that, you know, I didn't trust them anymore for, I didn't trust my mom anymore for telling my dad that I was molested. They didn't know that I hated them for switching my therapist and I just shut it off. And, you know, my dad didn't know, you know, half of what he had done, um, as I was growing up because ultimately he was a first time parent and it was kind of trial and error. And this is what he was taught. And there were so many things that like, you know, he didn't realize how much, you know, the molestation actually affected me or what really went on because it came to a point where I closed down and just kind of going through scenario by scenario. The reason why they changed my therapist was because some rabbi highly suggested this other one. So I figured they switch it. In my mind, I was like, you guys are crazy, but I wasn't going to talk about it. Um, you know, the fact that, you know, my dad didn't switch my schools or switch my schools. It was all just a matter of, you know, what he thought in his head was the right thing to do. Um, you know, and kind of, it, it, it sort of happened and like, I had to kind of see through his lenses. Um, and then he, he had to see a lot through my lenses about what my view was growing up and what his view was growing up. Um, and I think that combined with those two that sort of built, that was like the, uh, I guess the foundation of our relationship was sort of being able to verbalize everything that we thought and felt, um, kind of accepting of what the other person has seen and what they thought throughout the years. Um, and then kind of coming to this mutual realization of like, you know, I'm sorry, you know, they, they said they're sorry for certain things, you know, there's certain things obviously that they weren't and that's okay. You know, again, they're their own people and they have the right to do their own things which is why like it took a lot on my part, but it also took a lot on their part, which is why I said like, I'm beyond grateful that I have the ability and they had the ability to kind of see eye to eye with each other. Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds like you, you each had to um, do the hard work of sort of stepping out of yourselves and, and ex- experiencing um, some empathy for, for what the other was going through at the time. Yeah or at least some, some mutual understanding. Definitely. Um, so what, what do you want people who are struggling with trauma and substance abuse to know? You know, I know that you, you know, talk about what you've been through and I'm just wondering what, what do you think would be helpful for them to know? You know, what would you, um, what would you have wanted to know? So, Here's the, I'll, I'll, I'll say a few things. Here's the honest truth. Um, when I was out there, there wasn't really anything that I wanted to know or hear. Um, all I wanted to do was get drunk and get high because I felt like that was the only thing that was going to keep me sane. Um, and, and, you know, nobody knew what I felt like. And there was no way I was ever going to live life like a normal person or, you know, my drug use was controlled or, you know, all these kind of excuses and answers and they might've all been valid. And I probably could have spent the rest of my life in pain and misery until I killed myself or kept using. But what I do want to say to anybody that's out there that's struggling with any of these things is that there are other people that have gone through this and I'm not saying that theirs is any worse or any better, you know, every person experiences their own pain in different ways, but I've seen so many people get past it from so many different walks of life going through, like everyone's got their own story. 
And I've seen so many people get help and are living, you know, beautiful, happy and healthy lives. Um, and there is a way out and all it really takes is just to reach out for help just that once, because even if you don't believe that there's no hope for you, I promise you that there is hope. There is hope for every single person on this planet. Um, because I felt that same way. I felt that there was no hope and it took other people to believe that there was hope for me until I was able to find that hope on my own. Um, you know, I can talk about today till tomorrow that drugs and alcohol are bad for you and, you know, but I'm not, you know, because at the end of the day, they were my solution for a very, very long time and they worked, which is why I kept doing them. But ultimately it came to a point where they just don't work anymore. Um, and if you're at that, if anyone is at that point, um, there is, there is a way out. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, just, just reach out, you know, there's, there's too many people dying and, and, you know, I hate to get morbid and all, but I lost five friends, three from the Jewish community and two from, you know, the non-Jewish community, but I lost five friends in a month last month. Um, and it sucks, you know, and there's a lot of people that try to get sober that don't make it because they don't necessarily throw them, their entire selves into doing whatever it will take to get clean and sober. And like I guess I'm not blaming them. They've had their own issues. And, you know, maybe if I'd been in their positions, nothing would have happened. But what I can tell you is, is that as much as somebody might think that there's no hope and they're going to end up dead, just like everybody else, I drove straight from a friend's funeral to another friend who celebrated 15 years of recovery because if you reach out and do what you need to do, whatever capacity that is, whether it be a 12-step program, whether it be going through a smart recovery or a drug counselor, however it is, I highly suggest the 12-step program because I know that's what worked for me, but whatever it is, if, if you reach out, you have a chance. And as long as you do that, there's still a hope and a shot for you to live a happy and beautiful life. And I fully believe that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that you're, you're pointing out something that's really important, right? Cause as much as somebody might be offering, um, offering somebody help, um, you know, that person needs to be willing to accept it. Um, and also believe that it's possible. Um, yeah. and it sounds like there were times in your life where, you know, maybe the help was being offered, but either you didn't believe it was possible or, you know, as, as you say, what, what you were doing was working for you. And, and so there wasn't so much incentive um, to stop until, you know, things really kind of reached a certain point in your life. Um, and, you know, and I also, you know, um, I know that, you know, there was a point where you just felt like you couldn't really see beyond, right, Um you know, that you yeah. felt like you, you just didn't want to keep going. And, and it, you know, sometimes knowing that somebody else has that faith, right? You said your friend, you know, you were talking to a friend of yours and, and he had said that, you know, do you trust me? Do you, do you believe me that I believe that you can make it right? That you, I believe that you can, that you can do this. Um, and yeah. that, and that was so powerful for you. Yeah. I mean, uh, the relatability as well, you know, like, like you mentioned, and like I mentioned before, it's like also realizing that like, you're not, Nobody's in this alone. There's always going to be somebody out there. Um, there's always going to be somebody out there that's struggled with what they're struggling with or had this, even not the same scenarios, but struggled with the same feelings and the same types of ways, which is why, like, today, you know, ultimately, like, I hate the fact, the concept 
that I have to take medication, that I have to deal with my mental health issues on a daily basis. You know, they don't act out, but I need to do what I need to do for my drug addiction, for my alcoholism, for my trauma. You know, in, in a perfect world, I would hate all of that. But in reality today, I don't. And uh, the reason why is because I can do things like this. You know, I can go to somebody's house and, and, and you know, listen to them talk sitting on the floor with a bottle in their hands. You know, I can go for a friend and pick them up from their apartment right after getting high and driving them to the airport and sending them off to rehab. You know, like there's other people that kind of, there's a lot of people that just go through the same things and just think that they're in this all alone and they're not, they're not. Yeah. And you know, uh, I'm sure that your, your efforts are, are very appreciated by the people that have been positively affected by you sharing your story, you um, stepping in, when help is needed. And, um, you know, it, it sounds like, you know, things are, are not perfect. And, you know, usually things aren't perfect, generally speaking, um, for anyone really, but, uh, it also sounds like, um, you know, things have gotten to a point where you, you feel like, you know, you're very grateful and happy for the life that you're living. And, you know, you have some bad days, but, but generally, you know, you're looking forward to things kind of moving forward. Definitely. Um, you know, just, and the proof, the proof of that is just, you know, with, with the, the funny thing is, is that I, I have proof because kind of taking scenarios, what I, I do this all the time with my life is kind of, if I go through something rough, kind of just seeing myself three years ago, dealing with that situation and how I deal with it now. Um, you know, in, in, in recovery programs that I work in, we call it like sober references where it's like kind of just looking back and seeing how I would have reacted. And I have the mental health stuff, you know, like getting a new job. I just started a new job. I just moved from the place that I was living for four years. You know, I'm waiting for my apartment to be ready and I'm all over the place and all these things that three years ago would have sent me off the rails long ago, you know? And, and like I said, I still have the ability to kind of go through it. Um, you know, staying connected with the help of other people, you know, because ultimately I'm not the only one that's helping other people. There's other people helping me, you know, and it's just one big, one big circle of love, as they say, you know, and it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, and support, you know, you can't understate getting support from people who, um, you know, know what you're going through from getting, you know, the right treatment. So that, that might be, you know, if you have underlying mental health um, considerations, then sometimes that's medication. Sometimes that's a combination of medication and therapy. Um, and um, as you said, you know, you can look back and you can see just how much better you're coping with all the stress going on. Not that there isn't stress because, you know, things happen. We live our lives and their lives, our lives can be stressful. But, you know, having just developed some ways to manage and cope and, and, and get through it in a way that's a lot healthier and a lot safer. Definitely. Um, you know, and, and you told me that you were just recently celebrating um, four years of sobriety. So I want to congratulate you for that. Uh, and thank I want to thank you for uh, coming on to talk to us and to share all of this with us. My pleasure. Um, you know, and, and, you know, just wish you continued healing and wellness um, as you move forward in your life. Thank you. I appreciate it. All right, Jason. 
thank you so much for talking to us. We really do appreciate no it. No problem. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. Take care. Good night, everyone.